one of the best things I've learned, especially in business, is that people are still your best asset. You can buy as many properties as you want. You can buy as much, as many nice things as you want. But it's the it's that investing in people, the quality of that person, because that relationship, if you look at why relationships fail, and I've had, you know, everyone's got relationships that fail at different levels, business, personal, whatever. It's about clarity of communication, setting expectations, and then actually investing in that, turning up, and working through difficult problems. And it's the same thing. And, in, and I found that that's really, in property, you have to you have to go through that. And your network is your, they say your network is your net worth. Yeah, it is, because I get really great advice, and I invest a lot in time and people. And that's actually, people, it's, it's rare that people do invest in other people. And that's why coaching's fun, because you can really then invest in someone. Welcome to the Biology of Business, where we talk about the anatomy and physiology of a business so you can apply your clinical reasoning skills to your business reasoning and create a healthy, sustainable, impactful and profitable clinic. I hope you enjoy listening and subscribe. Good morning, I'm Kate and this is the Biology of Business show and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Mark Sheldon Lloyd. Welcome Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me Kate, it's great. So, Mark, you're very interesting in that you are a plastic surgeon who no longer works in the NHS and a property investor. And somewhere in amongst all of that, you managed to help other doctors learn how they can find financial freedom as well. Yeah, it's um, it's a mix which works really well. And I think it surprises people because they didn't see me coming as a property investor. It was always something I kept secret, but it was very much a a very big part of my life and I think the two go really well and I think doctors are really well suited to have these portfolio careers because they've got so many skill sets that transfer very well into the business world and if you look at a lot of things with business business is really about relationship it's about creating good relationships people invest in relationships they invest in you as a person they don't invest in a deal as such the deal is secondary to that or the asset that you're trying to acquire so I think it's the same when patients say, I would like you to do my surgery. You you create this, you they you get they get to know you and you get to know them. And it's I think doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals think that they can look at their career in isolation, but a lot of those skill sets actually you're just applying them differently. And looking after a group of tenants, you can provide a very, very good standard of care because as a doctor or a nurse, for someone in the healthcare profession, you look at it with more, with a different perspective, um, a more human perspective. And that's important as well, because that makes a great business as well. And then you get more business and then you become more successful. So I think, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a combination which people think how, you know, how do you fit it all in? What do you do? How do you get going? But ultimately, yeah, I'm both. And one has been a blessing for the other and the other has been a blessing for the other. So they work in tandem really well. Yeah. And now you've found a way of merging all of your expertise into uh, into what you do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I didn't think about coaching others until I had my first ever protégé, as it were, was a very young um, registrar from Liverpool. He's a great guy. 
And I'd just come back from America and I was sitting at my desk in my NHS office, which is quite, you know, a bit paint peeling, all that kind of stuff going on, a few paper clips here and there, uh, <laughs> other people's documents around. I got a phone call and it was lovely, a lovely phone call. He just phoned me up and said, oh, Mark, you know, I've seen what you've been doing and uh, I've seen what you you, you did your United States medical licensing exams, you did cranial facial, you've got your consultant's job, um, but also, you, you, you know, you, you're good at business. And I'd actually met this chap very early on in his life, actually. He, he was going to his MRCS graduation, which is, if you're from overseas, is the kind of finishing off of your introductory surgical exams. And I was actually graduating from my FRCS plastics examination which is the end exam so we actually met having a drink his he was with his parents and i was with my parents and we just got chatting and um i just said hey you know yeah sure what do you want to know he goes well how did you go about it? i said well why don't i share you and so i started mentoring him for his united states medical licensing exams because no one had mentored me i just basically did it and it was like really kind of tough mm. saw him get great success he passed first time. I never passed first time. I, uh, <laughs> I really struggled through them. I oh, felt yeah, a lot of exams. exams. It's just learning the game that you need yeah, to play, obviously. Exactly. And if you haven't got any tutoring in terms of what the rules of this new game are that you're playing. <sighs> it's so hard. And everyone makes a big, like, everyone makes everything a mystery. You know, it's great. Because they can keep hold of it then, you know. <laughs> they love power, don't they? Everyone wants yeah. to keep hold of secrets, makes them look more special. But there's no mystery to anything I've done. Um, I, lay, I put it all out there. And from from teaching him all those years ago, I basically started talking about property. He bought his first property. He's going on to his second property. So we, he actually became the first guy I ever really coached. And then more people saw my lifestyle, really. And they said, oh, you know, Mark's always, you know, I always get comments about my cars or my clothes or something like that. I've, I've always had flash tastes and it, my mother spotted it as soon as I was born, I think. Um, and she said, oh, you know, son, if you really want to make that money that, you know, to afford those things, you, you go out, you buy every car magazine, you used to always, you know, be into my little models and collect them all. She goes, you're going to have to do a little bit more than work on the NHS. And I said, mm. sure. And, and then I was always a very obedient son. And I think that made me a very good trainee as well. And I think this is a very it's an important lesson to life who you're obedient to who you're loyal to mm. because you've got to keep your wits about you and we'll probably go into this so i won't go too much mm. into it now but literally um i always had this um family life which was very business orientated my father was a mechanic my mom was a very industrious lady brilliant businesswoman and she you know i bought this property my mom taught me how to rent it out when everyone was going out celebrating after passing medical school, I was in a house trying to work out, you know, why it had damp and turning bed mattresses. That was and the less glamorous side. Less glamorous. And yes. That's right. And I learned to rent it out. And then all of a sudden I saw rent coming in. I thought, this is not bad, actually. This is not bad at all. And that money actually allowed me to be educated and go all the way with my craniofacial surgery training because going to the states is is it costs money I, I, i'm hesitant to use the word expensive because expensive i use if, if something doesn't offer the value that i perceive it should give yeah. so i don't think the word expensive can be applied to many things i think education is what it is if you believe it has value that's the price you have to pay for it so i funded a lot of my education in surgery and through my nhs really life through um 
income from property. That's what I did, yeah. So let's just rewind a little bit. So earlier this week on LinkedIn, I think it was this week, it might have been last, you posted the most gorgeous letter where as a junior doctor, you had written to a professor, I think it was. Yes, that's right. Oh, that was so funny. Please, can I have a job? (laughs) Yes, that's right. I mean, no one tells you how to get into plastic surgery. Like, no one tells you how to get into property. No one tells you how to do anything. Like, it's like when you're trying to invest, but I was talking about this at a... Uh, a course. I said, how do you find joint joint people who will do joint ventures with you? Do you turn up at some private members club? Do you sit down on a sofa and say, oh, hello? You know, it's all very awkward. And I think people have to understand that 99% of people who've got to where they, 100% of them really, it's just the more people are open about it. It is awkward. It is about just saying, I see what you're doing. It's a bit like when that guy phoned me. He had my number, he had my email, but he had to put himself out there. He had to say, I'm Mark, I'd like to copy you. That's what you're saying. I say it all the time. I'd like to, to be what you are. You are. Can you help me get to where you are? Mm. And that's what I did. So I said, dear, you know, uh, Mr. Plastic Surgeon, um, I, re- I remember writing the letter as well. And I remember I was very careful. I, you know, I had to kind of redo it a few times. I was scared because I made a few mistakes. I thought, <laughs> oh no, it's plastic surgery. It's meant to be neat and tidy. Everyone's going to look at it and look how it's, you know, written. So I wrote it with the best bounding pen on the best paper. And I thought I was writing to, um, you know, our beloved queen, um, may she rest in peace. And it was like that, like writing to royalty. And you you hand the letter over, like all those sort of velvet cushion to the, you know. You're, 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 a, you're a junior doctor at this, this point in time. That's yeah. right. And, you, you know, you feel you've got something, you've got, you know, you've got an exam behind you. And you, but all you've got is enthusiasm. You know, you haven't got the skills. But you also um, have clarity in that you knew what you wanted. Yeah, I did. Um, I think that's something that is unique in quite a few people who go to do something they know they want to do something big they don't quite know how what it is they just know i i want to do something big something special something that will make a difference something that will improve someone's life or many people's lives there was always that element in me that i wanted to do something heroic um and it could have come from my love of superheroes um, it could have come from my uh, my love or respect for all the people who served in, you know, the Battle of Britain, all the pilots, all the doctors who treated them with burns injuries. So for me, there's there's this feeling all the time that I'm I'm more than just me. I can do something big, and then you kind of focus on it. So yeah, I, I wanted to do plastic surgery because it was tricky to get into. It's challenging. Everyone said, don't do it. So if someone says, don't do something, what do I go and do? I go and do it. You know, yeah, it's like it's like who you date as well. <laughs> always, you know, always date someone that annoys everyone else. That's always, a, they're probably going to be a great person and uh, you probably end up being a lot happier. But I think it's it's strange, it's strange how I've, I've always kept that. So if the herd is going one way, I will definitely go the other way. It's like a reflex. If I see everyone on the tube rushing towards a train, I will pause, hold back, and probably wait for the next train. And I have a lot more than peace. So that's it, really, yeah. Yeah. So you were very focused when you wrote this letter. And what you're describing is that not only did you know what you want, that attribute of being willing to write, dear sir, in your finest handwriting, came across as best as you could. Yes. It's a skill that you've continued to use. 
Yeah, I think so. I still feel that um, one of the things that when you write to someone saying you want to be like this, says, can you give something to them? Then you give them like a gift. A lot of people, it's it's something nice in business or something nice in life when someone says, you know what, um, I really want to work with you. And what I can offer is this. Maybe I can give you my time. Maybe you need a spare pair of hands. That's what I did. That actually got me my first plastic surgery job back in 2001. And I was at St. Thomas's. And what the way the I got the job is that I actually said, can I help you? I visited the unit. I said, could I help you today? And they looked at me and they said, yes, you can. I said, really? And I said, yes, we've got no registrar in theatre. We're doing a hand surgery case. We need someone to hold the hook. Do you, do you mind doing that? I said, sure. So I went in there. And I, nowadays, HR would be, oh, no, you haven't signed all your health and safety. That was back in 2001. It was a very unique time 2001 um and yeah i just helped out and and i got my job and they said you know what we when it came to selecting people you're the only person who said yes who made time uh didn't make an excuse to go away and i said really i really want to be a plastic surgeon and they said yeah that's fine got the job and that was my first ever job and I've, I've continued that since and i found that if you kind of offer a gift like if i'm going to someone's house or they invite me in i always bring something like you know something cheesy because you know i love cheese I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, but like you know a bottle of wine or chocolates or something nice it's it's saying hey you know appreciate that you you're going to share some stuff with me maybe i can give you something back in return and a lot of the advice they give you know 90 percent of people who communicate with me on linkedin will never take up my services but they always try i always try to give them something of value I mean, I could take pictures of me in nice places and holidays and with my cars, whatever. But without any educational value, it's empty. Mm. And I think that's where I found that approach has done me okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting because you're making the extraordinary very simple. But I've heard quite a few people that have done extraordinary things describe it in a very simple way. And it, Mm. it isn't actually that's difficult to differentiate yourself because so few people put the effort in to commit to knowing what they want and where they want to go and taking those steps like you're describing of turning up and saying can I help taking a gift what really is extraordinary is how little or how rarely those things are done it's true and also we live in a very consumer orientated society you know, if you look at what creates trust, it's consistency in behaviour. It's about being able to show that consistent results. Like, um, you know, people will then look at you and say, actually, hey, this is something I really want to be part of. It's the same way patients come and ask me, uh, ask me, you know, can you do my surgery? You know, because I'm a niche plastic surgeon now, a, a cosmetic ear surgeon, ear reconstruction surgeon. So they come, they seek the kind of clinic the other, that I'm held under the umbrella of, and they say, hey, you know, it's about building that trust. And that just comes from sometimes they said, yeah, the thing that, that that was different to you, Mark, is that actually you asked me about, was I being bullied? Was I being teased as a child? And that really kind of opened me up to understanding why I want my ears set back or why I want my this this done. And then we went back into that you you know you, you were interested in me as a person, not just me as a probably possible technical exercise where you can then say charge your fee. That's not how it works. And I found that one of the best things I've learned, especially in business, 
is that people are still your best asset. You can buy as many properties as you want. You can buy as much, as many nice things as you want. But it's the it's that investing in people, the quality of that person, because that relationship, if you look at why relationships fail, and I've had, you know, everyone's got relationships that fail, different levels, business, personal, whatever. It's about clarity of communication, setting expectations, and then actually investing in that, turning up, and working through difficult problems. And it's the same thing. And, in, and I found that that's really in property, you have to you have to go through that. And your network is your, they say your network is your net worth. Yeah, it is because I get really great advice and I've invested a lot in time with people. And that's actually people, it's, it's rare that people do invest in other people. And that's why coaching is fun because you can really then invest in someone. But it means the, the times you are stuck. Yeah, you have five friends that you can call to ask for. You you probably know somebody that's been in a similar stuckness at some point in time yeah. and found a found a route that they're willing to share. If you've made your contribution along the way too, that's right. And also, you can have all the answers, but you just need someone to say, "Hey, that's exactly right. There is no easy answer." And when they when they've been doing it longer than you, and they say that then you're saying, great, I now feel that I've got, I'm not the odd one out, I'm not stupid. Um, one of the things that holds a lot of people back is that they're afraid to feel, they're afraid to look stupid. They're afraid to feel rejected. I can tell you now, even as a guy who's, you know, on Harley Street, meant to be one of the, you know, best places to practice uh, medicine, you know, in the UK and in the world, possibly. And I still feel stupid. I still ask people. I still I had to present my my findings at an audit meeting. Then I was at a property course and I was offering, I was asking questions and I felt really stupid. That ability to remove that emotion from asking your question, that is important to grasp. And also you have to use to be to pe for people saying, I don't want what you want. I don't want to go out with you. I don't want to be with you. I, that's fine. You've got to know yourself and you've got to work on yourself and you've got to really just say, hey, that's okay. But you, what people then do is doubt themselves and go, oh, well, maybe I'm, there's something I need to change about myself. Or yeah, there may be things that you maybe need to tweak your style or the way you, you kind of, go about building rapport but normally most people i've met they're all right they're great people i don't find people that i don't go around saying all oh, the world's everyone's horrible no i think i've seen so many great things so yeah i think it's, it's all about you've got to get overcome that feeling of saying hey i i feel stupid join the club welcome to the club so we are going to talk about how you went about leaving the NHS, which yep. is a big step for any medical or health profession. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to pick up on your niche. So you decided you wanted to be a surgeon. Yeah. But you didn't decide you wanted to be a general surgeon or an orthopaedic surgeon, of which there are many. You decided yeah. you wanted to be plastics, which is very niche in itself. And you mentioned yes. already that it's not that many. Yes. But then you've picked an absolute micro niche. Yes, that's right. Of just focusing on the ear. Yeah. It's kind of it was kind of by okay, this is interesting. 
ultimately, if you had to say why I became an ear reconstruction surgeon, it's because I could do the job. And when I was, I remember sitting in my accommodation in Houston, Texas, my fellowship was, I was about two thirds of the way through my fellowship. And it was January 2015, and my fellowship was ending in June 2015. And I sat there and I was anxious. I said, oh gosh, you know, all the things, all the negativity comes into your mind. I'm 40 years old. I'm not married. I don't have a consultant's job. I'm not, I'm not making the bucks. What will everyone think of me? And I suddenly just thought, hold on a second. What can I actually do? I can do a lot of different things. And it's a bit like a mechanic, you know, I can do different jobs. Um, so I could do craniofacial, ear reconstruction was part of that. And then I just went about it pragmatically. I, I sat down with my boss, his name was um, David Kachoyan. He's a fantastic craniofacial surgeon. Um, he helped me out a lot. And I said, David, I need a job. And he goes, he said, okay, um, great. Uh, this is how you get a job. And he just taught me this process. And it follows a lot of what we're talking about. So I wrote a letter to every craniofacial unit in the United States and the UK. And I said, you know what? My name's Mark Floyd. I've trained in this. I would like a job. And I got responses. The American guys were good and the British guys were good. You know, they were all just as good. And they wrote back to me saying, I haven't got a job at the moment. And, you know, but that's fine. And then we finished this meeting. I went back to my little office. And I checked on, um, you know, the NHS jobs. And a job had come up at Birmingham Children's saying ear reconstruction surgery needed. And the first thing I said was, I can do that. I do that every week. I'm doing them and no one else wants to do them. So I knew I had the skill. I knew I could do an ear reconstruction. I've done the whole surgery. It was, it was really tough learning it. And I had great trainers early on in my craniofacial training at Race Ormond Street. One of the trainers also, also supported me throughout my time as an ear reconstruction surgeon. There's still a great guy um, who I hold a lot of time for. And I applied for the job and they didn't want me. The consultants initially didn't want me, but the, the hospital wanted me. And it came down to one simple fact. And it's, it's, it's actually mind-blowing how it came down to this. I'd actually done the surgery. I'd actually got evidence in my logbook and photographs and testimonies from the consultants that I had physically done the surgery, whereas the other candidates had talked about it, but had never done it. And it was a no-brainer. They took me, I started the service, and that's it. So I chose that because there was a job. And then from that, I took what I had, which wasn't, you know, I didn't say, oh, I didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I want to be an ear reconstruction surgeon. It was a job. I could have done cleft open palate. I could have done craniosynostosis. I could have done facial reanimation. And I, it was an ear reconstruction. I knew I could do it. I took the job and then carved my private practice out of that opportunity. I took, a, I made another opportunity. And my private practice, just going into that, started because I was headhunted by the private clinic. They were looking for someone who could do ears. I was doing a job. Uh, I was doing private work in Birmingham for the private clinic of Harley Street. They said, oh, why don't you come down to Harley Street? Why don't you come down to the main place? And I said, would you be able to do that? It's, is it too far for you? I said, of course it's not too far, you know. 
And, you know, one hour, 15 minutes later from Birmingham New Street to London Euston, I was sitting in an office in Harley Street and that's it. My private practice started in Harley Street and I built it up from there. So it was about taking that one opportunity and working with whatever I had. Um, now, what's interesting is so many people fear being so niche. But it's the best, well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. But what happens is, is that then... That, Ears on. It's it's again. It's pragmatic. We have two of them. Isn't that great? If you're a nose guy, you've got one nose, but I've got two ears. So you know, there's always work to be done. The other thing is that I used to always think, you know, who would want? Is there enough room? This is a, this is this is comes that comes back to our mindset. Um, are there enough patients for me to practice privately? And it suddenly dawned on me that the world doesn't stop reproducing when you start your private practice and there's a limited number of babies being born. Babies are being born, people grow up and guess what? You get a population that needs your service. It's the same with property. So being niche, everyone used to say, well, Mark does that. That's his USP. Why don't we send him the ears? And so that's how I started doing more and more and more and more. And over six years, I did well over 550 uh, just autoplasties, that's just operations on the ear, uh, making it, That's that, and that's okay, that's an okay number, I thought, um, and then I'd done ear reconstruction, so I did, that's it, and also, I always knew that that patient group was had been bullied and teased, so I channeled a lot of what had happened in my life, I could relate to it, yeah, you and it's just like, yeah, so yeah what it's just, what, I just want to summarise there, because you've absolutely nailed the question that people, when they have all this fear about hmm. niching, is are there going to be enough patients? Are there going to be enough clients for me? But actually, by having a niche, you've asked it beautifully in terms of there are people being born every day. And yeah. if you have this micro niche, people know exactly what you do and have been able, both professionals, colleague, prof professional colleagues and patients have been able to find you knowing that you answer their question. But what you're just leading on to there beautifully was how well you're able to resonate with them and communicate with them because you know what all their emotional fears and challenges and obstacles have been that have led them to come to find you in the first place. That's right. And the, everyone's broken. Everyone's, you know, wearing a mask. It's the classic things that we, we have to learn. And what is the hardest thing to do is to take off your mask. You know, if you had to say, who is, who are we? It's often the things that we really enjoyed in childhood. It could be like, for me, it's dancing. I would say, if you just, you know, if you had to say, what's your core spirit is the spirit of dance and if you look at a lot of the property investors one of the guys who i look to rob moore um he is an artist he he's an artist that's who he actually is he's not a property investor if you look at a lot of people their core who there is is not always what they're doing and that's important because what we lose is the ability to be free we lose the ability to stretch our arms out. We lose the ability to fall forwards into an open space and knowing someone's going to catch us. We lose that ability very early on. Why? Because the world tells us that we're going to be used. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be, we're going to have to put defences up. Um, once we, I think, say to ourselves, hey, I'm willing to put myself out there. Like for you going onto social media, for me posting, you have to just, it is scary. You think, oh my gosh, the whole world's out there now. They're going to read about my stories. Are they going to 
like make fun of me? Yes, they are, maybe. But I can tell you now, when I post, it's an investment in not just my future, but I know in someone else's future, they're going to say, do you know what? That guy, he's okay. Uh, Kate's fantastic. They've been through stuff. They're doing okay. I think I can make it, you know? I think I can make it. And I think people realise that when you leave the NHS, there's not just like you just don't... The NHS is not the world. It's just an organisation. Yes. You know, it's just an organisation. And it's an organisation that can work for you. It's a bit like serving in the army. You serve all the armed services. You can do it for some time. You train, you serve. But then you have to actually work your way out. Otherwise, you potentially may not be right for you all the way through your life. You know, and it's not that the NHS is the awful beast trying to control you. That's how people want to perceive it. You have your right to say, I choose to be in it or out of it. But if you're going to be out of it, I believe you need a way of thinking through it so you don't make the mistake of just being um, flippant with your decision. It's strategic. It's done over many different processes and with many expert advisors. You make that decision and then it's right for you. And then, you know, that's right. So I don't encourage people to leave the NHS. What I do encourage people is to understand it and understand if it's right for them. And if they're struggling or they're in pain, there is, there are many, many options for you out there that can help you um, have a great life. It's just people are not told about them. It's again, it's the mystery. You know, who are these mysterious people that don't work in the NHS? Who are these mysterious plastic surgeons? You know, who are these mysterious, you know, business people? Who are these mysterious property investors? Everyone wants to make a mystery of everything. There's no mystery in anything. There's no there's no need for talent in anything. You just work a little bit harder. You just practice a bit more. You'll get there. You just keep keep going, you know. But there's a lot of myths about lots of things. So I I choose to dispel the myths and choose to tell people how I do it and then they've got a clear pathway and they know that I'm not broke um they know that I'm okay and they know that I'm um pretty straightforward and willing to talk about my vulnerabilities how I failed um and I still survived so there I am yeah what you mentioned there right at the beginning which I think is quite a difficult thing is for people to recognize that they have their own sovereignty they have their own sovereignty and they don't have to be obedient to the NHS, bringing us back to where you started. Yeah. You can be obedient to your to yourself, to your family, to that's right. what you want I, your quality of life to Yeah, I, I, I feel that's very important. A lot of people can look at people, like you look at anyone who's successful, um, Gordon Ramsay, I, I take as an example, he's got a brother with um, addictions and mental health issues. In my own family, um, we have a, a family member suffering with those problems too, all the way through my life all the way through my life. If I'd chosen, and my mother said this very clearly to me, she goes, if you choose not to wake up in the morning, sob in bed about this, and not go out, don't blame the world, blame yourself. Because it's your choice how you choose to react to what that situation is. And I never use my personal life as an excuse not to be successful. And I never use my 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 own pain as saying, oh, you know, someone didn't want my service. That means I'm going to write an angry social media post criticising people or doing this. That's not how I am. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to grow. This is a reflex that has to be worked, has to be trained on, and it can only be trained really well if you have accountability to someone else or you can actually have a, a, a mentor that says, look, 
it's a bit like, you know, people talk about it with alcohol, alcoholism or gambling. Why do we leave it to those things to talk about it? Actually, everyone should have a mentor or a coach or someone that says, having a really bad day today, just told off my PA for not booking the calendar correctly, missed a meeting, lost a deal, everything's going wrong, I'm a really horrible person. Do you know what? Can I just tell you that? I'm a really horrible person. And someone says, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're not a horrible person, you're just having a bad day. <laughs> and then let's work on it. Can you? And then you go out and you apologise. And apologising is something that I'm very good at as well. I've created a way of apologising, which is meaningful for, for the person who I'm giving the apology to, not to relieve my guilt. Mm. And I think that's important as well. Because that's... Um, yeah, I've got a fantastic apology story for you, by the way, um, because it's linked to that apology was given to the person who actually is the person I wrote the letter to. Oh, come on, Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> because it was it was a mind blowing catch up we had. But I don't want to distract you from the other things on the okay, we'll program. But we can catch, we can catch well, up at the I'll end. I'll make a note and we'll come back to your apology <laughs> yeah. story. So, but what you're reiterating there is that. In reality, we can only choose for ourselves. Nobody else can, we can't choose for anybody else. We can yeah. only choose for ourselves. I think you're right, Kate. And we, we, if there are certain things that we have to be tolerant of, mm. but if we are generally unhappy, I, that I, again, it comes back to knowing yourself. So I remember I was feeling down and, um, it was again my mother. She said, she goes, why are you feeling down? She goes, oh, I don't know. There's something about it. Uh, she goes, well, tell me about your week what what are you doing and I said well I've got the ward round then I've got this and I've got that and I've got this and I've got that and I was a year four plastic surgery registrar doing head and neck cancer microsurgery and breast cancer microsurgery heavy mm. I was doing well over 100 hours a week definitely and she goes and it was like mother's wisdom do you know the thing that you're not doing uh, son that you normally like to do I said what's that she goes you're not dancing I said, what? I said, you're not dancing anymore. I've noticed you're not watching it. I've seen what's on your, um, what you're recording on the videos. You're not recording the shows. You're not, you know, your, your, your dancing's gone. Mm -hmm. So for me, dancing mm -hmm. is my happiness, right? That's one of the things. Driving is my happiness. Cars are my happy. I've got little happy places. They've got to be in my life and everyone's got them. And what often happens is they get, slowly delete it from our lives and then all of a sudden we we're being controlled not 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 ourselves we're being controlled from external forces because the internal thing we love is being it's not there so i protect those things i protect dancing i protect my love of cars i protect my you know my love of having chats with people and my love of writing i protect those things and then I make sure they're protected. And I think if people can do that, then that's really good. And then they can work out where, why they're not happy, you know, where they are. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. I'm just a guy who is on a podcast telling you how he became a plastic surgeon property investor and, you know, faced the challenges that I, I, I you know, I faced. Well, I'm going to share with you a little mum story. Myself. Yeah. My son's eight. He loves swimming. Oh, yeah. And he loves swimming. Never gets yeah. out of the water unhappy. Always gets out of the water happy. And I told him not too long ago how lucky he is. Because if you know in life what that thing is that gives you life, you've got a secret weapon forever. 
Yeah. If you ever feel down, for you it's dance, for my son it's swimming, where it yeah. might change in life, but it's like yeah. you have a secret weapon to manage yeah. yourself. That's right. And all your creativity comes from those things. So you can, yeah. you know, I, I'll have gone for a dance or I've gone for a drive or I've been uh, working on a car or something like that. And all of a sudden you get, oh, yes, I get the idea. I, I understand what's, I can sort out this problem now. I've got, I've got some kind of, I've had a mental break for it, but I've also been doing, my brain's been working on it whilst I've been doing that other thing. That's really important. That's, that's it, really. Yeah. Lucky. If you know what that is for you. Mm-hmm. And people have to find that. It could be something very simple, like going for walks. I love walking too. So that's very important. And I think once we capture that and protect it, we can, we can, uh, you know, get on. So what are the steps then for somebody that's considering leaving the NHS? We mentioned that once you start to recognise that the NHS is an organisation, there yeah. are other options and you have the ability to make choices for yourself. Yes. When I wrote about it, I split it, it's, it's, it it's a whole process that really comes down to um, three main areas. There's a kind of a realisation phase. That's what we've talked about a lot in this first part of the podcast. But then you've got to actually look at your numbers and that's going to be very You've got that requires a lot of integrity, a lot of honesty with yourself. That also touches on one of the things that we're not very good at in or what I found the culture of the NHS doesn't like talking about is money. And that is a really massive stumbling block for people mentally to say, start talking about money openly, sharing, like, you know, I I think that's something that you have to work on but it requires a sensitive approach but also a very clear approach so that's the numbers phase and then i think the last bit is the strategy phase and those three phases you have to work through and you shouldn't really go to exit until you've worked through it because you'll discover a lot of things about yourself and about your finances the nhs may be actually you may change your your perception of the NHS, where the benefits are. You know, that's important. You may appreciate it more or realise that you actually can work in in things in the NHS that could make your life better, but you didn't realise what they were because you'd never actually spent time looking at it. And a lot of what we perceive as the NHS are people's behaviours, a lot of it actually. Um, And then, you know, there's money as well but I think that's that's how I that's how I went about it and I looked at that very carefully. How long did it take you from the realisation phase to the exiting? How long do you think? Um, I think it took me I knew I wasn't who I could I didn't really feel myself in the NHS after about probably it was definitely before the pandemic knew that this there was something there was a uh, I'd definitely gone through the realisation phase. I knew I'd had enough money coming in through property. I knew I could do it. Um, so I'd probably say, yeah, maybe about a year or so between the realisation, the actual end of the, the realisation phase was happening anyway, you know, but it, between about a year or so, that's when it, I, I worked it out. And I also started actively getting advice from um, people I trusted and, and had, had done it. Yeah, something that I certainly found. I would say it probably took me about the same amount of time, probably about six months, realising that this yeah. is possible and there are other options. But then 
setting a date in the diary for six months ahead to make sure you could get all the building blocks in place. That's right. Ready to 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 execute. That's right. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. Um, and I took advice from a very close friend, actually in the car world, who was a is an ophthalmologist, and we went through it in quite a lot of detail. And then I talked about it. You know, that was the, I, we talked about our mental health. That was one thing. That was that was big. And also, I it was becoming very difficult to almost do the job. You know, to do an ear reconstruction, to start on you know start theatres. And I had a fantastic team. I had two fantastic nurses I worked with. Um, both now have have retired. Really, they've they've moved on. I had a great secretary. Had a great staff grade, great physicians associate. He used to have a really lovely, really lovely team, the reconstruction team. I, if you, and had a great, a really, had a couple of fun anesthetists. It was really good. But if you look up actually how, how tiring and how tough it was for all of us to actually do the process, once we, it was almost like, it was almost like, you know, trying to get to a, a great night out and you have every obstruction in the way, you know, oh, the trains are late this hasn't come, this hasn't arrived. You think, oh no, you know, and you finally get there. To go through that, it wore us all down, to be honest with you. But yeah, it's, you know, I don't want to go too off-piste, but, you know, it, it, I think there's a comes a point where you just realise it's not right for you and that's it. So one um, of the things people fear is professional judgment. They feel the fear, the judgment of their colleagues for them choosing to leave the NHS. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I think, I think, I'm a definitely a capitalist. I was definitely a capitalist working in a socialist organisation. There's one film I want to hark back to because I, I, I think this is a great film. I haven't read the book, which is, you know, a bit shame to say. It's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And in that book, if in that film, if you haven't watched it, Jack Nicholson plays a chap who is admitted into a mental health hospital. And he's very kind of proactive. He, you know, he's great. But there's a very controlling nurse who medicates the other patients and controls the whole atmosphere. I'm not going to spoil, give you a, a spoiler alert by telling you how it ends. That's how it felt working in the organisation. I was like, is everyone not getting this? That actually we can be, we can do have fun here, we can do this. Um, you know, it, it, it's just crazy, it's absolutely crazy. So that's, um, that's that, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's just the way it is, yeah. Yes, but there, when it gets that bad, actually, the fear of the judgment of your colleagues becomes irrelevant because of yeah, that's right. Only... I think going back, going back to fear, um, fear of judgment of colleagues, you are going to get judgment. You're going to get people that say, "Oh, you believe just in this. You're just looking after yourself." But my colleagues weren't quite like that. I, I, my colleagues were really, really understood it. They got it, and actually, they said, "I congratulate you. If I could do it, I would." but I just haven't got the building blocks in place. So I actually didn't experience judgment from my colleagues as such. I thought what I get, what I have experienced is judgment from those people who don't know me when I'm on social media. People who've gone very high up in the NHS or have gone leadership, have done MBAs, yet they are unable to tell people the building blocks as to why it works and why it is okay. They've been unable to convince me that your pension is going to be enough for you. 
they've they've not convinced me that if you want to send your child to a private school, how you're going to fund that. They haven't convinced me that they have time to speak with their families. I've got a great life now, and we'll come on to that, I suppose, like, you know, um, how you, how my life's changed, but I have time to have breakfast with my dad. I have time to see my, you know, my family member who has problems. I get to visit them regularly. I get a chance to spend time with people. I have to accept that I'm not Mr. Mark Lloyd, consultant, ear reconstruction surgeon at this, in this NHS kind of environment. I have to accept that I'm not going to do maybe all the operations I did before. So you've got to pull your ego out of that. All those letters after my name, they have become irrelevant in the sense of who I am now. I've got a sense of contentment, peace. I'm not anxious. I'm really focused. I've got the bigger picture in mind now. Policy change in education, you know, much more um, bigger vision than I ever had just being on the NHS. And, you know, I, I... I respect anyone who's worked, you know, I respect the NHS. I respect what it, it, it can achieve and what it has done. But you have to know yourself. And I think a lot of people don't know themselves and they just follow the herd and they just do tick boxes and they keep going through the process and until they realise it's too late and then they're stuck. I refuse to be stuck. I refuse to have someone say that my life has to be me always, you know, changing it for the on-call rotor. I have to always be somewhat subservient to someone else's crazy idea. I choose to actually look for the truth, to look for what's right for my family and the time. And if I feel that I'm not getting a chance to see my dad enough or any of my family or my loved ones, that something has to change. So I have to give up something and replace it with something else. That's important. Have your patients cared that you've left the NHS? Yeah, they have. It's um, very, very, they have. It's been, that was tough. They also expected it. The number of times you've finished clinic and a patient, patients would say, oh, you know, I can't see you just, it's like you're such a, I don't know, a, a wide or, I don't know, colourful guy and you're here in this little office or room. I can't see you being here. I said, well, let's see how it goes. But actually, yeah, I think they were, they were, they were, they were sad, but they were very grateful. And also they knew, they kind of sensed it was coming from having been my you know, patients for many years. They knew that I was, I was, I would, I would move on properly. So yeah, it wasn't, it was a bit heart-wrenching, some of the, some of it, especially saying, you know, goodbye to some of the children I made years for, and, you know, it, it, can, it can get pretty emotional, but I'm a human being and I loved all the patients I treated. They were inspirational. The families were inspirational and they became friends. They were, you know, and it was good. The patients that seek you out now, is it important to them whether you work in the NHS or not? No, no one cares. No one cares. No, everyone, this is the funny thing that people think. They, they don't look at, when I ask people, why did you come to see me today? Well, how did you find me? They said, oh, well, Mr. Lee, um, do you know what? Um, we found you on Google and we looked at the Google reviews. Then we looked at Trustpilot. Then we saw actually you trained in America. We know America's like a big place with, you know, customer service is high. And, you, you know, it was, and, and, and that's it. 
And then I said, right, so it wasn't because I have a master's in philosophy. No, it wasn't because I've got 50 publications. No. And it's like, oh, okay. So it's about relationship. It's about care. It's about fundamental human issues. And I was like, oh, you know, there's so much academic, acad you know, Acad no, we've got to be more academic. We've got to do. We've got to have more degrees. We've got to do more more degrees and more qualifications. We've got to sit on more committees. No one cares. Ultimately, when we see it in a major instance, you know, can you can you just you know be kind? Can you can you just do something you know meaningful? And I thought, okay, I get it now. I get it. And it was humbling. And I thought, wow. And a lot of people think you have a big ego when you you think you can leave the NHS. It's actually the opposite. You actually you have to give up your ego. Yeah. To be truly, truly, I think, yourself, you have to give up this fact of what other people think of you, this perception of you. Even working on Harley Street, you know, it's like it's, it resets that completely. You've got the guys who are doing it. It's very competitive to stay there, to, to get your practice growing. You have to lose your ego. You're not Mr. Big Shot anymore. You're, you're just another person starting their business and yeah. you have to accept that and it's it's tough um how has your life changed and how can time. people find out more yeah. from you yeah okay so just quickly um i think they can find me easily on linkedin it's dr mark sheldon lloyd they can find me on instagram again it's dr mark sheldon lloyd uh and they can also yeah they can rescue linkedin is the best place i've also got my website marksheldonlloyd.com um how my, how's my life changed i've got more quality time with my loved ones um i definitely make more money that's true um i'm now you know definitely in the bracket of what they call a, a high net worth individual my network is much more inspirational and much more encouraging and also comes up with great advice and also i i've just had the honor of meeting so many amazing people now because of those other things and they're just there's just so many amazing people out there that i would never have met and connected with so yeah it's good i've got you know and the last question that the listeners will want to know what is your favorite car oh my favorite car um, I've got one of them uh, already, actually. But I'm a massive Lamborghini guy. Everyone who has known me since a little boy know, knew I was. Uh, I've got an Aventador at the moment. I used to have a Murcielago as well, but that's um, become a buy-to-let property because it's actually appreciated. Um, but I think my favourite car is either the Murcielago or the Aventador. Um, I've always been building models of Lamborghinis as a little boy, and it was always the entrepreneur's brand and the most flamboyant brand and also an impossible thing. And when I bought my first one, my parents were absolutely blown away. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. And the people who own them are really, really interesting as well. So it's pretty cool. So that, oh. I think that brand is my favourite brand and the car I've got now is my favourite car. I know the brand. I have no idea who the cars are, but I'm sure the listeners will. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark, for your time today and Thank for joining you. me. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, grab a copy of How to Create a Super Successful Practice Plan at marchandmethod.com forward slash grow. And whilst you're there, you can check out the free training that'll help you tackle common problems practice owners just like you face. Thirdly, at marchandmethod.com forward slash grow, you can sign up for my free newsletter where I send out weekly hints and tips. 
You'll also get links to the podcast, articles, and other resources that you might find helpful and inspiring as you grow your practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can access more influential guests and bring their lessons back to you here.